When was the last time you said to another person, I dare you? Now, I dare not ask you what you dared them to do. It's not my business. But I wonder, were you successful? Did it, did it work? Did they take the dare? Those three words, I dare you, usually challenge another person to perform some action or do something that requires a degree of courage. Or maybe something a bit risky, like I dare you to jump off this big rock into the lake. Or at the very least, something that's outside of a person's comfort zone. Last week we saw a bit of the Christmas story, that uh, movie where on a, a school playground in freezing weather, one boy triple dog dares the other to stick his tongue on the frozen flagpole. And of course the young boy takes the dare and his tongue is promptly frozen to the pole. Today we are in week two of a five-week series in which we, the congregation of Elam Chapel, are daring ourselves to do five things for Christ and his kingdom. We're daring ourselves to believe, to commit, to hope, to generosity, to be generous, and to love others. Each of these five actions are absolutely essential to our spiritual growth and our spiritual health. And each of these are vitally important. We dare not neglect them because failure to do these things has eternal consequences. Last week we discussed that failure to dare to believe separates us from a relationship with Christ. These things are extremely important. So our aim this morning is that we would dare one another to commit. What we aspire to is to be a church in which we are fully committed to Jesus Christ, to God. So we dare each other to commit ourselves more fully to God. In the second book of Chronicles, a seer, or we might call him a prophet, confronts Asa, the king of Judah. Now earlier in his reign, Asa had trusted in God, and God had given the country victory over their enemies. But now recently, he's chosen to take the silver and the gold from the temple and hire mercenaries from Syria to do the job. So the prophet goes to him and says directly into the point, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What a fool you have been. From now on, you will be at war. King Asa started well, but slowly he forgot to be fully committed to God, and he began to trust other things. Now, what do we mean? To, to commit is to promise or give your loyalty, your time, your money to a particular principle or a person or plan of action. That's from the, the Cambridge Dictionary. It's a, it's a promise to give your loyalty, your time. People commit to many things. But we're daring ourselves to be fully committed to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we need as his disciples. As we're going to see in the gospel reading this morning, commitment to him should be the one commitment that takes priority over all our other commitments. In fact, it should be the one commitment that governs our other commitments. Now, the past several years, we've been working at identifying ourselves as a church as disciples of Jesus who make disciples. 
This is a principle to which we are committing ourselves as a congregation. We are disciples of Jesus who help other people become disciples of Jesus. Now, for this to become our identity, each one of us must work toward living as a disciple who is fully committed to Jesus Christ. Commitments are an important part of our lives. The commitments that we make or don't make are some of the primary forces that give shape to our lives. Whatever I am today has much to do with what or to whom I have been committed for the last 70 years. One man said it this way, Whatever you are today is what you spent your time on becoming yesterday. The doctor who sees us, should we need to go to the ER, was committed to the goal of becoming a physician with all of the hard work that that involves. The lawyer who's there if we need legal guidance was committed to legal studies and to discipline himself or herself to be a good lawyer. The athletes who you will watch this afternoon playing football, if that's your way of spending the afternoon, are on the field because of their commitment to the discipline of taking their talent and skill and turning it into the ability to play at the highest level. Whatever any person aspires to, vocationally or in any other way, involves commitment to the hard work of preparation and practice that will make them successful. This is not new information. Neither is this little bit of information stated by another pastor. If you're not committed to anything, you'll not amount to anything. Now, if you think that sounds a bit harsh from a pastor... Wait till you explore the words of Jesus in Luke 14 that Kim read just a few minutes ago. Turn in your Bible to Luke 14. If you're going to use the pew Bible in front of you, it's page 797 in that red Bible that's there. While you're doing that, did you know that just north of Dallas, Texas, there's a little town called Grapevine, Texas? And did you know that in Grapevine, Texas, there's a little church called the Cowboy Heritage Church? No, you did. Did you know that? You didn't know that. Oh, there is. And the pastor of that church is a very interesting man. It looks interesting. Um, he's been a cowboy. He's been a rodeo performer, writer. He's been a ranch manager. He's been a pastor. If you wonder how riding a horse qualifies someone to be a pastor. Uh, I would add that his credentials include a Ph.D. from Trinity Seminary. So he's, he's well studied. He gives us a summary of the verses that we're looking at, Luke 14, 25 to 35, and I, I think his summary is about as good as it gets. He said, my friends, this is a total commitment that he is requiring. You must follow him completely or not at all. It is all or nothing. Jesus Christ is either Lord over everything in your life, including your life itself or he is not Lord at all. Now, before we look more closely at these verses, let's back up just a little bit. Earlier in this chapter, beginning in verse 16, Jesus tells a parable about a great banquet. Uh, A man who obviously was a man of means planned a great banquet, and he sent out invitations to many people. We might call it the parable of the great feast. It was a banquet meant to be both large and and extravagant. And when everything was finally ready, he sent out his his servants to summon those to whom invitations had been sent. 
But for whatever reasons, people began making excuses for not coming to this banquet. One person said, uh, well, I, I bought a field and I've got to go inspect it. Which makes you think, did you buy it without inspecting it first? The other person says, I, I bought a pair of oxen, I've got to try them out. To which we say, well, didn't you test drive them first before you bought them? Another one says, I just got married. Well, you can figure out what, where that one goes, I don't know. The man became quite angry, and he sent out his servants to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. He, he, we, we see some of them there being led because they're blind, being carried because they're crippled. And he says, none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Well, that was accomplished, and yet there was still room. So he sent out his servants into the streets and the hedges and said, just bring in anybody you can find. And they filled up the banquet. The great feast did not go to waste. But many of those who were first invited missed out. End of the story. But as we move on to the next verses, I wonder if the theme of this story, this parable, isn't the theme of excuses. They made excuses for not responding to the invitation. Keep that in the back of your mind for a few minutes. Now, at this point in the chapter, Luke reminds us of two details that we should know. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and a very large crowd of people was going with him. He was becoming increasingly famous, and he was drawing many people who were curious. And more than a few wanted to get on the bandwagon with him. They were volunteering to become one of his disciples. And it was to that crowd of people and to us today that the words of Jesus are addressed. Let us carefully consider what Jesus said, and may the Lord give us ears to hear and respond. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Keep in mind the cowboy preacher's summation. This is a total commitment that Jesus requires. It's all or nothing. He's either Lord over everything or Lord of nothing. Some have labeled this section the cost of discipleship. Jesus does make it clear to the crowd listening and to us today that we need to count the cost of being his disciple because it is costly. However, for our purpose today, let's call it a call to full commitment. The words of Jesus are a call to full commitment. He dares us to be fully committed. Now, he begins with two blunt propositions. Look at verses 25 to 27. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison, your father and your mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. It does sound harsh, doesn't it? Who would want to follow a man that would say such things? No politician could ever get away with talking like that. Never get a single vote. But what if somebody was leading a great expedition? What if someone was going on a great adventure? What if somebody was going to lead 
a mission of mercy? And what if that person were to say similar things? Ernest Shackleton led three expeditions to explore Antarctica in the early part of the 20th century. On one of these trips, his ship was caught in the ice and crushed by the ice, and they had to make a long trip by smaller boat to escape. Maybe you've seen a copy of this newspaper notice. It reads, Men wanted for hazardous journeys, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness. Sounds like Winnipeg, I think. No, no, not that bad. Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Well, sadly, this, this advertisement is, is a bit of legend. Uh, most scholars don't think that Shackleton actually posted this ad. Uh, but you get the point. Those men who joined his expedition would endure great hardship and had a very, very good chance of not coming back alive. But many joined him, daring to commit to the plan, for they either loved adventure and risk or they believed in the importance of the mission, or likely a little bit of both. In Luke, we see Jesus on a mission, and that's why he's headed for Jerusalem. It's the greatest mission in human history, and he wants his disciples to join him on that mission. But only those who are fully committed to following him. So he puts this forward in these two blunt propositions. You must hate father and mother, and you must carry your cross. Well, look at the first. How could Jesus tell us to hate father and mother? How could he say such a thing? Is it not written in the Decalogue that we are to love father and mother? Indeed, it is one of the Ten Commandments. Love and honor your father and mother. But the Semitic word that Jesus used means to love less than something else. To love less by comparison. So Jesus is declaring that he must be our first love. And all other loves are lesser by comparison to our love for him. Almost like hatred by comparison. In other words, our loyalty is to him first and foremost. The second proposition is that we must carry our cross the instrument of our own execution. To carry a cross is to walk to your death, just like Jesus did on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. Those are the two blunt propositions. If you want to be my disciple, you must love me first and foremost, and you must carry your cross. There's actually a third proposition, but before he states it, he talks to us about counting the cost. He pictures a man who contemplates a building project or a war. We'll start reading at verse 28. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, he might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started the building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple 
without giving up everything you own. Well, we see the man here on, on the left are the armies that he's had. He's figuring out how many soldiers he's got, how many chariots. And on the right, there's the building he's thinking about building. Does he have enough to finish it? Now, what we see in this passage is not just Jesus telling us to count the cost. What we have in this passage is Jesus actually helping us count the cost to do the very thing that he's asked us to do by outlining for us the cost itself, what it requires. So far, we've seen that it requires loving him more than anything else in the world, anyone or anything, which is really just simply the right thing and proper thing to do in the case of the one who loves us more than any other person could possibly love us. To love the one who died for us. And also our response is to carry our cross, to accept, in one sense, our own death. But then there's a third proposition. Look at verse 33 again. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. I'm appalled at how much I own some days. I went down into the basement the morning to make myself a cup of coffee on my espresso maker. And I looked at all this. I said, you know, I remember when I just started off and I had a, an apartment that was half the size of this one room in which I'm making this coffee on this espresso maker. I got too much stuff. Well, what are we to do? Are we to take this literally and become like homeless people? Indeed, many saints have done that. However, I think the proposition works like the first one. Just as we love him so much that, by comparison, the love for other things is not that great. So he is so important to us that all the things that we own aren't really that important anymore. They don't have that value for us. They don't have a hold on us anymore. In other words, Jesus must be more important to us than the things we own or even the totality of everything that we own. It just doesn't matter to us. How do we accomplish that? Partly we do it by recognizing that we really don't own anything. We're just simply stewards. God has given us things. I've practiced that as carefully as I can with every house I've owned. The first house I purchased was in 73. And I thought it was a a huge house for two of us. And I stood in the backyard and I said, well, Lord, this is your house. And I'd like you to use this house according to your will. I didn't know what that prayer was going to cost me. But in three months there were four other people living in the house with us. I said, okay, Lord, that's what you had in mind. I see. So given what we've heard in Luke 14, just how committed must we be to be Jesus' disciples? It's a question that we have to take seriously. How committed do we have to be? And the answer, of course, is that Jesus wants us to be fully committed to him. 
loving him more than anyone or anything else in the world, even more than we love ourselves. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we choose to carry our cross and to die to ourselves. And we hold our possessions loosely, knowing that nothing we own, neither the total amount of our possessions, is worth as much as being a committed follower of Jesus Christ. This is how the Apostle Paul lived his life. He lived as a man who dared to commit. He said, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You notice in this picture that he's holding a book and he's holding a sword. Does that interest you? Most of the pictures of of St. Paul painted in the past had both the book and the sword. The book represents the many epistles he wrote to churches. He has blessed the church enormously by his letters to the Galatian church, the Philippian church, the Colossian church, the Ephesian church. But why has he got a sword? The sword is symbolic of his death. He died as a martyr for Jesus Christ. And the sword represents his death, that he was willing to give up his life as a martyr. To be fully committed as a disciple of Jesus is to be able to say, like Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. I've carried my cross to my own death. I have died to myself. When you're dead, your stuff doesn't matter. When you're dead, what you want doesn't matter. We should count ourselves as dead because we are crucified with Christ. Now, what Jesus says makes sense to us if, we, if he is really who we believe him to be. And we have dared to believe that he is indeed who he says he is. He is God. He is the creator of the universe. He is the eternal king of, of the universe. It's not like being committed to a political leader or a great thinker. It's not even like being committed to your spouse. We're talking about being created to the one who is eternal and who created us and everything that we know and the one who died for us to reconcile us to God and the one who reigns eternally. He is worthy of nothing less than our fullest commitment. In the parable we saw earlier, people were invited to attend a great feast, but they offered up excuses for not going. In the words that follow, Jesus invites us to be fully committed to him. The two sections brought together encourage us to avoid making excuses for being fully committed. Let us not make excuses for being fully committed to Christ. Let us count the cost and let us become fully committed. Billy Graham said it well. Salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything. It costs a total commitment to Christ. Well, there's some practical things we could do I would just mention to you briefly. Remember the definition of commit? It means to promise and give loyalty, time, and money to a principle, to a person, to a plan of action. So loyalty. 
Let's put Jesus first in our lives. We can do that by taking the advice of one person who says, let Jesus be the first person you talk to in the morning and the last person you talk to at night. Start your day talking to Jesus, end your day talking to Jesus. Get to know Jesus better by spending time in Scripture. Time not just reading the Bible. You can read the Bible and not get a thing out of it. Reading the Bible in order to know Jesus better. You read the Old Testament to know Jesus better, the New Testament to know Jesus better. Consult with Jesus throughout the day. You have a decision to make? Ask ask Jesus, Lord, what would you want me to do? What do you want me to do in this situation? That's a way of practical loyalty to Jesus, putting him first, loving him. Time. When people are asked in the church to do something, the most common response that leadership hears is, oh, I don't think I have the time to do that. So make time to serve Jesus. We've all got the same amount of time. Every single one of us has an exactly identical amount of minutes in every given day. So make time. Get involved for his sake. The congregation that's fully engaged in service is a healthier congregation than one that has a lot of people that just sit in pews. And don't dare tell me you're too old. And don't dare tell me you're too young. We need people of all ages involved in service in the church. The choir is going to start up again, the seasonal choir. We need singers. We need Sunday school teachers all the time. We need youth workers. We need people to run the media show. We need people to run the sound. Those are important things. We need greeters who will welcome people and love them. We need people who will take visitors home for lunch. We have all kinds of ways you can serve the Lord. We need to be an entire congregation of prayers who pray for the needs of the people in our church and pray for our church. And third is money. Uh, Giving loyalty, time, money. Practice tithing. Practice tithing. Every month, set aside a certain percentage of your income and say, this is the Lord's. He gets the first X percent. Ten percent is is a good place to start. Some people do 20 percent. I've known a few that do 50 percent. Practice tithing. It will help you get a new perspective on your stuff and on your money. Put Jesus first. That's what it means to be fully committed to him. Practice tithing. For young people, it's hard. I know. I I remember when I was... Yeah, I do remember when I was younger. Not not always. And, And I remember paying my tithe right out of my paycheck first. And then I had all the bills to pay. And I remember juggling checks. I remember I'd stack them on top of the fridge. And when I had enough money in the bank to pay that bill, there goes that check in the mail. And when I had enough money to pay the next one... There goes that check. It's, it's, it's not easy, but it's a wonderful way to be committed to Jesus. A wonderful way. So those are some practical things. 
Finally, the verses that we've been looking at this morning end with what may be called a warning. Look at verses 34 and 35. Salt is good for seasoning. It's like Jesus is just suddenly changing the subject. He's not. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown away. Anyone who with ears to hear should listen and understand. He's talking about worthless salt. What's the connection? A disciple who is not fully committed is what? Worthless. Lost, too, probably, but worthless, of no use to anybody. So I don't think of this as much as a warning. I think of it as a promise. Oh, well, actually, I didn't come up with this. <laughs> Last year for Christmas, I got a, a, an African commentary. All the articles are in this commentary written by African pastors and theologians. And it's the first time I ever saw somebody suggest that this is not as much a warning as it is a promise. The promise is that if we are fully committed to Jesus, we will never be worthless. Did you, does that make sense? If we're fully committed to Jesus, we won't be worthless. We'll be salt. But what's the value of salt? Well, salt makes things taste better. And salt, through the history until recently, when we had other, other chemicals and processes, salt was used to preserve food to keep it from spoiling. Vitally important. If we're fully committed to Jesus, he will use us as salt, and we will make life better for one another, more flavorful, and for the world around us, our neighbors, the people we work with. And we will also be used by God in a preservative sort of way to preserve what is good and right. So it's a promise. If we will commit ourselves to God, we'll never be useless. We'll be used by Him in our world.